Well, the 4th of July, just a, a couple of weeks away, uh, when we celebrate that day back in 1776, when the founding fathers of our country signed the Declaration of Independence. And two guys who had a lot to do with that document were John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. They happened to be best buds. They were very good friends. In fact, after, after the Revolutionary War, both of them served in George Washington's administration. Their friendship grew still further. They exchanged lots of letters back and forth, which is what people used to do before they had cell phones and could text and FaceTime. All right, so we've got all these letters between the two guys. Joseph Ellis has written a book called The Founding Brothers about some of the, uh, you know, the country's pioneers, the original leaders. There's an entire chapter in his book dedicated to the friendship of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson simply called The Friendship. I mean, it was a famous friendship. Unfortunately, the friendship began to unravel toward the end of George Washington's administration because both John and Tom wanted the same prize. They both wanted George's job. They both wanted to be president. And so a, a bitter political rivalry ensued. It trashed their friendship. I mean, they said really awful things about each other. For a period of eight years, there were no letters exchanged between the two guys. Until finally, John Adams decided to renew the friendship, began writing Thomas Jefferson again. For the next 14 years, he wrote 158 letters that we still have today to Thomas Jefferson. So there's a happy ending to the story. The friendship was renewed. In fact, these two guys both died on the same day within five hours of each other. And it gets better. The day they died on was the 4th of July. And it gets even better than that. The 4th of July that they died on was the 50th anniversary, the golden anniversary of the signing of the De Declaration of Independence. Now, we're, we're in the last week of a three-part series on friendship. And today we're going to talk about what makes friendship last. What, what makes friendship last? Because, unfortunately, a lot of our good friendships go through hard times, like the friendship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And truth be known, some of our friendships don't survive those hard times. They take a hit, and they never fully recover. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. So how do we begin? How do we maintain friendships that will endure? That's the focus of our study today. Now, the first week of this friendship series, our teacher by way of example, was Jesus Christ. You know, he gave us, by way of role modeling, he gave us four essential building blocks for friendship. Then the second week of the series, last weekend, our teacher was King Solomon. He gave us dozens of proverbs about how to build good relationships, a lot of them having to do with the words that come, come out of our mouths. Remember, life-draining words, life-giving words we talked about last weekend. Today, our teacher is going to be a guy named Jonathan guy named Jonathan whose best friend was David, Israel's most famous king. And Jonathan stuck with David through thick and thin. As friendships go, Jonathan was a lifer. That's what he's going to teach us today. You know, five lessons of a lifer. Okay, five lessons about how to, how to build an enduring friendship. So if you haven't taken your outline out yet, I encourage you to take it out, fill it out as we go so you can remember these five lessons. Uh, each of them begin, I should say each of them is just a single word. The first word is initiate. So if you've got a, 
a, a program in front of you, you want to jot that down, I- initiate, and each of these five lessons is just one word. So to make it memorable, if you take the first letter of each of these five words, they spell absolutely nothing, okay, because I just, I wasn't, I wasn't sharp enough to come up with anything, all right? So initiate. Now I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and while you're finding 1 Samuel, I want to give you a little background to this story, okay? So, so Jonathan is the son of Israel's first king, a guy by the name of Saul. A guy who's a little whacked out, to be honest. He's very insecure. Uh, he's insanely jealous of other people. And Jonathan's best bud is David, who happens to be the most popular guy in Israel at the time. In fact, in the, in the previous chapter, that, uh, you know, to the one we're going to start in, in 1 Samuel 17, David goes toe-to-toe with a ginormous Philistine warrior by the name of Goliath, and he defeats him with the help of a slingshot. Okay, so, so David becomes an instant hero in Israel. Everybody, the entire population adores David. Everybody's wearing I Love David t-shirts. Everybody's drinking. Everybody's drinking. Yeah, we're selling those at, at Resource today. Yeah. Everybody's drinking out of I Love David coffee cups. Even the king's daughter, Saul's daughter, Michael, she's got a crush on David. She wants to marry David. And Saul's son, Jonathan, makes David his best buddy. And and Saul himself is not into all this David fever because he's insanely jealous. He's certain that David has his eye on his throne, that David wants to steal the kingdom from Saul. And, and, And truth be known, there was a prophet by the name of Samuel who had already very quietly, very discreetly predicted that one day David would be king. However, you need to understand that David was doing nothing personally to hurry this prophecy along. You know, David had ultimate respect, absolute respect for King Saul. And that's where we pick up the story. Okay, Saul is a bit befuddled because he hates David, but he's got to pretend like he likes David because he's such a nice guy. All right, so 1 Samuel 18 verse 1. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. First lesson about a lifelong, enduring friendship. Initiate. Initiate. This is the first thing I want you to note about the friendship between Jonathan and David. Jonathan took the initiative. You know, Jonathan got things started. If you got your Bible still open in front of you, middle of verse 1, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him. Verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan's the initiator of this friendship. Now just a side note here because there's a, a popular misinterpretation of this relationship in our contemporary culture. There, there are some people who point to this friendship and say this is an example of a God-approved gay partnership. So nothing could be further from the truth. You know, for, 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 for one thing, I mean, you know, people say, well, look, Jonathan loved David as himself. It says it twice in this passage. You know, for, for starters, let me remind you that the Bible says this is a behavior every one of us ought to exhibit toward each other. You know, Jesus said the second greatest commandment is what? 
to love your neighbor as yourself. Jonathan loved David as himself. Nothing wrong with that, exactly what God tells us to do. And the second thing I would point out here with respect to that misinterpretation is that God's word clearly prohibits homosexual behavior. I want to distinguish between homosexual behavior and homosexual orientation. I'm going to come back to this in just a minute for further clarification. But, but if the Bible prohibits the behavior, it's highly unlikely that, that, that it would hold up then as kind of an example of a great friendship, this friendship between Jonathan and David. You know, and the last thing I, I would say is that from the rest of their lives, the rest of their stories, we know these were two heterosexual guys. Unfortunately, David proved it by his affair with his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba. Jonathan and David were not gay partners. Just an aside here, uh, two years ago, we did a three-part series on homosexuality, what the Bible says. So if you miss that, you might want to go online and take a look at it. Uh, one of the things that we, we did teach was that God calls us to love those in the LGBT community. God calls us to throw, throw open our arms, welcome them here at Christ Community Church. You know, so, so when something happens like what recently happened in Orlando, we mourn that. We pray for families that are going through incredible grief right now. So, so we, we can believe that God prohibits certain behavior and still not reject the people that practice that behavior, right? All right. So let's go back to the main point I'm making. If we want... If we want lifelong, enduring friendships with other people, the first step is to initiate. That's what Jonathan did. Now, very practically, what does initiating look like? Let me make a couple of suggestions here. First, stop waiting for the phone to ring. Pick it up and call somebody. Okay, stop waiting for the phone to ring. You know, don't, don't bemoan the fact, you know, nobody ever calls me. Nobody ever invites me to go to a movie. No, nobody even remembers my birthday. So what? You know, get over it. Take the initiative. Instead of waiting for the phone to ring, pick it up and call somebody. Invite them to go to a movie. Throw a birthday party for somebody else. Enough with the excuses as to why we can't be the initiators. Well, I'm single, living in a, a world of couples, or I'm on the road, I travel all week for business, I don't have the time to engage in friendship with other people. I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home mom with two preschoolers, I'm exhausted, too exhausted for friendship. I'm a freshman at the high school, the lower rung on the social ladder, you know, and I don't play sports, I'm not first chair in the band, but pick up the phone, take the initiative. Take the initiative. Here's a second suggestion, never do anything alone. Never do anything alone. Wesley Hill teases out this advice in his book called Spiritual Friendship. Wes says, and I quote from his book, he says, we need to invite our friends to become more regular fixtures in our lives. This invitation could take a form of uh, as unassuming as setting up a regular time of walking the dogs together on Tuesday mornings or walking to the corner coffee shop after dropping the kids off at preschool on Thursdays. Never do anything alone. Now, never is probably too strong a word here, but you get the idea. I mean, if you're working on a household project, don't do it alone. 
if you're, if you're watching the grandkids, if you're studying for a big test, if you're heading out to Dairy Queen, if you're watching a Cubs game, invite somebody to join you. Initiate. Initiate. Now, before we move on to the next point, I want to go back to that distinction I made a moment ago between homosexual behavior and homosexual orientation because it has to do with Wesley Hill's book, Spiritual Friendship, which you'll hear me reference several times in this sermon. You know, if you pick up the book and read a powerful book, you'll find that, that Wes Hill identifies himself as a gay Christian. Now, what Wes means by that is that his orientation is gay. He finds himself attracted to other men. But Wes believes, just as we believe here at Christ Community Church, that God's word prohibits homosexual behavior. And, and Wes should know, because he's got a PhD in New Testament from Cambridge University. He's a really smart Bible guy. He knows what the Bible teaches. So how does he explain this orientation thing? Well, Wes would say, we live in a fallen world, and because we live in a fallen world, God's design, listen, God's design for things, including stuff like our sexual orientation, sometimes gets twisted. It's not quite right. And that's why Wes says he's determined that his orientation is not going to dictate his behavior. He's going to say no to the behavior that God prohibits in his word. And I know that some people would say to Wes, well, then, dude, you're, you know, you're destined to lead a lonely life. You know, if you refuse, if you deny the satisfaction of a gay partnership, and Wes's response to that is his book, Spiritual Friendship. And in the book, he makes this incredibly important point. You know, that soul-satisfying friendship doesn't depend on a sexual relationship. And friends, this is such a good point, not only for those of us who are same-sex attracted, it's a great point for those of us who are single and we're, we're thinking to ourselves, you know, if I could just get married, I could have this deep relationship. And Wes would say to you, you can have a soul-satisfying friendship as a single person. Great book, Spiritual Friendship, would recommend it to you. Number two, second lesson. First lesson, initiate. Second lesson, Commit. Commit. Go back to 1 Samuel 18. Let me reread verse 3 and continue on into verse 4. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, there are two demonstrations of commitment in these verses I don't want you to miss. You know, the first is that Jonathan made a covenant with David. If you've got your Bible open, you'll see the word covenant pop up twice. Circle it. This, this was a formal declaration of friendship. Jonathan was going on record. He wanted everybody to know, especially David, that I am committed to this friendship. Okay, friendship covenant. The, the other demonstration of Jonathan's commitment to this friendship was the gifts he gave David. Look at verse 4. These are very significant gifts. Jonathan's robe. This was a royal garment. This was something that distinguished Jonathan as the son of the king, as the prince, as the heir apparent to the throne. And he gives the robe to David. And then he gives the sword. He gives you know, his, uh, his sword, his bow, his, his bell, his weapons. A little backstory on the sword. 
we learn from uh, other places in 1 Samuel that the Philistines who had tyrannized Israel for years, they had oppressed Israel, they were kind of large and in charge, they had outlawed all blacksmiths in the country. Why blacksmiths? Well, because they didn't want the Israelites being able to forge weapons with which to defend themselves. And as a result, we learned there were only two swords in the entire country. Jonathan had one of them. This is the sword that he gives his friend David and says, I'm committed to you as a friend. Commit. You know, I told you a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of my best friends to this day is a guy I roomed with back in college. And uh, we still say, stay fairly well connected. He lives in Colorado. Uh, several years back, he was visiting me. And at the end of the visit, I was driving him back to the airport. And along the way, he reached into his backpack and he pulled out a ballpoint pen. And he handed it to me as I'm driving. And he, he explained, he said, Jim, this, this pen, this silver pen was given to me as a high school graduation present from my mom and dad. It's got my name engraved on the side. And I'm looking at the pen, it looks pretty, pretty well worn. And I'm wonder, wondering what this is about. And, and, and my friend John says, you know, I was just reading in the Old Testament that story about Jonathan and David. And he said, bro, I don't have a sword to give you, but I want you to have my, my pen as a sign of my commitment to this friendship. You know, that was a moment driving my car, my eyes are filling up with tears. And then, then John stomped on the moment. He said, by the way, the, the pen's out of ink. So, yeah, yeah, that's what we did. We burst out laughing. So I want you to think about this. You know, what could you do to communicate to some of your friends, a small handful of friends, that I really appreciate this friendship. I'm committed to you as a friend. You know, maybe it's a gift. You know, a gift for no reason. It's not their birthday, not an anniversary of some sort. It's accompanied by a card that just simply says, thank you for being my friend. I'm committed to you as a friend. You know, maybe it's the commitment you make to be there for them on special occasions, their graduation from school, a, you know, a wedding shower, some of their kids' activities as they begin to have children, family funerals. You're there for them. I commit. You, you know, maybe it's an annual, let's get away, let's get out of town, let's go snow skiing in Colorado for a few days, or, you know, let's go fishing up in Canada, sunbathing down in Florida. Absolutely nothing I can think of in Illinois, you know. <laughs> We, we, we live in a culture that doesn't value committed relationships. We don't value commitment in marriage. We don't value commitment at work, the company we work for. We don't value commitment in sports. I mean, to this day, I can still remember the batting order for the Cubs back when I was a boy. Yeah, it was because the same team played year after year after year after year. Now, now today, the same batting order, you know, you don't have the same batting order from, from game to game. With Joe Madden, you don't have it from inning to inning the, the same. You know, and that's how it often is in contemporary friendship. You know, whoever is at the top of our friends list today may not even make it to the list next year. Wes Hill, in his book, Spiritual Friendship, he suggests that maybe it's time for us to stop treating friendships in such a non-committal way. He asks a few questions. Listen to these. 
He says, should we begin to imagine friendship as more stable, permanent, and binding than we often do? Should we, in short, think of our friends more like the siblings we're stuck with, like it or not, than like our acquaintances? Should we begin to consider at least some of our friends as in large measure tantamount to family? Good questions. Do you have friends to whom you're willing to commit? To whom you're willing to commit? If I may, let me put in a plug for friendship here at Christ Community Church. Okay, the the best way to become good friends with some buds here at Christ Community is a community group. Get in a community group. Commit to a handful of people that you're going to study and apply God's word with. You know, and, and, and then determine that you're not going to miss a meeting. You're going to rearrange your schedule. Nothing's going to bump this weekly meeting with these friends to whom you're committed. In fact, if I could take it just one step further, consider committing to membership here. You know, pro- probably the, uh, the question we get asked most often about membership is why? You know? So what difference does it, does it make? Why should I become a member? I could get involved in a community group without being a member. I could come to weekend services without being a member. I could serve in any ministry here without being a member. I could go on a go team trip without being a member. Why do I need to be a member? And the answer is one word. It's commitment. It's, it's saying, this is my church body. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ to whom I belong. And they belong to me. And we've got this two-week course called Begin to Belong that we offer periodically. Take the next two-week course. I think in in St. Charles we offer it over the summer. Not sure at the other campuses. First weekend I come back in September after my summer study break, uh, we celebrate kind of a homecoming. We call it our belonging weekend where where we re-up our commitment to this being our church. You get it? Good. Third lesson. Number one, initiate. Number two, commit. Number three, defend. I want you to go back to 1 Samuel. Next chapter, chapter 19. Let me read the opening verses to you, beginning at verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Okay, Saul's getting worked up. Doesn't like David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul's looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He's not wronged you. What does he do? What he's done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistines. Philistine, the Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. You know, as as I read this and ruminated on it. I thought, you know, this must have been awfully hard for Jonathan to confront his dad in this way. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just his dad, it's, it's the king. But Jonathan's friendship with David was enduring, and the reason it was, one of the reasons, is because he def- defended his friend against unjust criticism and accusation. Jonathan had David's back. 
Jonathan had David's back. Do you have your friends back? Do they know that? Do they know that you will speak in their defense? Yeah, I, I love to read sports biographies, so just finished this one about Jackie Robinson. If you love baseball, you know he was the first African-American player in MLB. And this took place back in the mid-1940s, so it was a very tumultuous thing for him to come into baseball. And played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. One of his good friends on the team was the shortstop named Pee Wee Reese, white guy. And one of the first games that he plays in, they're playing down the Dodgers. Brooklyn Dodgers are playing down in Cincinnati. And a lot of fans come from south of the river in segregated redneck Kentucky come to the game. And from the get-go, from even before the first inning, during infield warm-up, they're beginning to heckle Jackie Robinson. They are saying the crudest things you could imagine about him. Until finally, Pee Wee Reese kind of holds up his hand to pause the infield practice. And he very cavalierly walks over to Jackie Robinson, and he drapes his arm casually around his shoulder. And then he looks up at these racist fans. And they get the message. It immediately shuts him up. Jackie Robinson later says, he said, what happened that day made it possible for me to never feel alone on the ball field again. Never alone. He had someone who had his back. Do we want lifelong friendships? You know, then it may become necessary from time to time to defend our friends. Now, there, there, there are two sides to this coin, and we learned about the two sides of this coin last weekend when we talked about words. We can speak life-draining words, we can speak life-giving words. Okay, one of the, the life-draining words is gossip. Gossip is talking about a friend behind their back, and we looked at the Proverbs, and Proverbs said, you know, don't do this, don't speak gossip, don't listen to gossip when you hear it, Push back on it. Do what Jonathan did with his dad. I'm sorry, Dad, you got it all wrong. What you're saying is not true about David. Push back. And if you can't push back, you know, change the conversation. And if you can't change the conversation, at least walk away. Refuse to participate. One of the ways we defend our friend. Now, the flip side of the coin, we talked about life-giving words. One of the life-giving words is rebuke. You know, we, we learned that there are occasions when you need to speak the truth to a friend, when you need to get in their face, when you need to bring to their attention something they're doing that's wrong or it's hurtful. It's hurting them or it's hurting other people. And we said, this is not being disloyal. Okay, you're, you're not failing to defend a friend when you, you do this. You're actually defending them against ma making a major mess of their lives. You know, let, let's say, for example, you've got a friend at work, okay? and your friend gets fired, and you know full well, because you know your friend, you know that there's just cause for this firing, you're not defending that friend by joining him in bad-mouthing the boss that fired him. You know, the best thing you can do is to help him resolve the problem that's causing him to get fired. A simple, kind, positive, I'm defending you, friend, rebuke. Okay, defend. Number four, defer. Defer. Back to 1 Samuel, we're going to go over to chapter 20. 
Uh, even though Jonathan defended David to his dad, Saul, and even though this defense, as we saw a moment ago, initially brought a change of heart to Saul, wasn't long before Saul was back to ranting and raving against David and threatening to kill him. And Jonathan was concerned for his friend's life. He, you know, he didn't know how seriously to take his dad's ranting and raving. Okay, is, is dad really going to do something to David? Is he going to murder him? Or is, you know, is dad just blowing off steam? And Jonathan felt like he needed to find out the answer to that question. And so he said to David, okay, here's a ruse. Here's, here's what I, I want you to do, Dave. I, I want you to go into hiding. Okay, and when dinner time comes, your place at the table, because David was living with the royal family at the time, your place at the table is going to be empty. My dad's going to ask, where's David? And I'm going to say he decided to take a trip to his hometown of Bethlehem. Now, if dad is cool with that, then he's probably not plotting anything against you. But if he gets angry, then we got trouble. We got trouble. So that night, David goes into hiding. Jonathan's at the dinner table. Saul says, why the empty seat? Jonathan says, David's gone to Bethlehem. And Saul goes ballistic. Saul goes ballistic. Pick up the story in chapter 20 down at verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I bet that's really nasty in the original Hebrew. Don't I know that you sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul, get this, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Yeah. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. I I want you to catch in Saul's tirade here what really, really bugged him about his son's friendship with David. Why was was Saul so honked out that Jonathan's best bud was David? It's because Saul knew that given David's popularity, he might one day be king. And if David became king, then Saul's son Jonathan would not become king king and that thought rankled Saul but you know what rankled him even more the fact that Jonathan his son was not rankled about it Jonathan seemed to be cool with it Why, why was Jonathan okay with not getting the job that he himself deserved as the royal prince it's because Jonathan was not looking out for number one Jonathan was looking out for his friend and so I'm using the word defer here to describe Jonathan's willingness to put his friend's best interests ahead of his own. This should remind us of something that we learned from Jesus' example the first week of this series. As we were talking about the four essential building blocks of friendship, one of those four building blocks is to show interest in others. And we looked at a passage in Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul makes this point. Got to put the interests of others above your own. And he cites Jesus as the example par excellence of this principle. It says Jesus was enjoying the glory of heaven, but he knew there was trouble on earth. He knew that every last one of us 
chooses to go our, our own way instead of God's way, and you've heard me say this many times, as a result of us going our own way, we disconnect, we unplug from God, and God's the giver of life. When you unplug from the giver of life, you die. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Eternal death, separation from God. Jesus can't bear this thought. And so Jesus decides, rather than just savoring the glory of heaven, he's going to put our interests above his own. He comes to earth. He becomes one of us so that he could be our representative on the cross, so that he could die the death we deserve to die. He could take the punishment, death. So as he's raised from the, the grave, he could now offer Forgiveness. He can now offer new life that begins the moment you surrender your life to him and stretches on into eternity. And friends, one, listen, one of the ways you know whether or not you've surrendered to Christ is once you surrender to him, his character starts to seep into your life. You start to care for friends in a, in a, in a new way. You begin to put their interests above your own. You begin to defer you begin to defer like Jesus did. You know, if our friends get something that, you know, we were kind of hoping to get for ourselves, if they get a promotion, if they get to take some exotic vacation, if they get accepted to the college of their choice, if they get a starting position on, on varsity, if they get a new, new baby and we're still childless, they get what we didn't get, we're elated for them. We're overjoyed. We couldn't be happier. We celebrate their good fortune. Maybe, maybe we do that literally, celebrate. We take them out to dinner. We throw a party for them. See, John, Jonathan was so good at this. Jonathan knew that it was customary for a king's son to become the next king. He knew that the crown, by all rights, should be his. But he also knew that David would, would make a great king. And he knew that God's blessing was on David. And so, so Jonathan didn't waste a second of his time, didn't waste a second of his time fussing over the fact that he was getting shortchanged and David's getting everything. Jonathan deferred to his friend. He was all about his friend's best interests. You know, I just read to you from 1 Samuel 20. If you'll turn over one page to 1 Samuel 23, I want you to look at a verse where Jonathan acknowledges to David that, David, you're going to be the superstar. And I, Jonathan, I'm going to play just a you know, supporting role. Look at, look at verse 17. Jonathan says to David, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. Now listen to this. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. And even my father Saul knows this. John, Jonathan is one cool dude. I mean, what, what, what a great friend to have. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to have a friend who's always looking out for your best interests? Wouldn't you love to have a friend who loves to celebrate your successes? Wouldn't you love to have a friend who in casual conversation wants to know, hey, what's going on in your life, instead of just going on endlessly about what's going on in their life? Don't you love a friend like that? Okay, are you being a friend like that to others? 
You know, do, do we make a big deal out of our friends? Do we turn the spotlight away from ourselves and onto them? Because that sort of deferring makes for friendships that last for a lifetime. Here's a fifth lesson. Redirect. Redirect. I just read to you the verse in which Jonathan says to David, you're going to be king, I'm going to be second. And you know what, bro? I'm good with that. I'm good with that. But I want to read to you the two verses right before that. Because now David is on the run. He's not just in hiding. He's running from Saul who's trying to track him down to kill him. And so Jonathan goes looking for David. He finds him and he wants to bring him some encouragement. Verse 15, while David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph. This does not sound like a vacation spot, does it? I mean, David is in the middle of nowhere. He learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. I love that last line. Helped him find strength in God. He tracks David down and he announces not... I'm here, bro. You could depend on your buddy Jonathan. No, he says, God's here for you, bro. You can depend on God. He helps him find strength in God. This is such an important point to make. You know, that, that, that God is to be the source of our strength. If, if friendship becomes an idol in our lives, if it becomes our number one priority, it becomes toxic. One of the books that I read in preparation for this friendship series, I mentioned this a couple weekends ago, a book called The Friendships of Women. Sue made me read it. <laughs> she suggested it. I say she made me read it because I'm embarrassed that I read this book about women. But I, I got it on Kindle so no one would see the cover. <laughs> okay. It's a good book. <laughs> It's written by this lady named Dee Breston. And she says, watch out. Watch out if you're making friendship into an idol in your life. She's got an entire chapter called Relational Idolatry. See, if our friends become our number one priority. And let me say this especially to those of you who are younger, because I think if you're middle school, high school, college 20-something, you're at a stage in life when friendships are so huge. But, but if they become a number one priority to the extent that these friendships even eclipse our relationship with God, it's not healthy. Friendships are a good thing. But when we make a good thing into an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. And so in her book, Dee Breston has this entire chapter called Relational Idolatry, and she points out some of the bad things that can happen when our friendships become an idol. Maybe you've experienced some of these bad things. Because friendship became too big a deal to you. Let me give you four of them. Uh, one of them, jealousy. We become really possessive of our, of our friends. We want them all, all to ourselves. We get hurt. We get angry when we find out that they're hanging out with other people, other friends. And we're not there. Second one, codependency. What's codependency? You know, see, it's when we allow the, the behavior, the actions of our friend to control our lives in some way. If you've got a really good friend and they're addicted to something, okay, they, they, maybe they've got anger issues, 
Or maybe they're just a demanding person. They like to order us around. They like to have their way. You know, and and we're not pushing back. We're not defining boundaries. It could be because we don't want to risk losing the friendship because the friendship is everything to us. It's codependency. Third, danger, sexual immorality. Dee Breston says this is especially true for women, and she cites some cases of some women she'd interviewed. What starts off as a tender, nurturing friendship that meets a real need for affirmation can sometimes wander wander into a physical, sexually inappropriate friendship. Fourth, spiritual complacency. You know, we stop growing in a relationship with God because we're always turning to our friends instead of turning to God. Now, if we've got a problem, instead of praying about it, our immediate recourse is to pick up the phone and call a friend or go out to coffee with a friend and dump on them. Now, if we're planning to go to church and our friend calls us and says, hey, we're going biking, we go biking. See, our friends begin to have more influence on our lives than God does. Those are some of the dangers of making friendship, which is a good thing, into an ultimate thing in our lives. Don't let that happen. Don't don't let your friends take your focus off God. And when you're with your friends, redirect their focus to God. I mean, you you want your friend's best friend to be God. Like, Like Jonathan with David, you want them to find their strength in God. Now, something I do on a regular basis whenever I've been hanging out with friends, usually within the next 24 hours in a time of prayer, I'll say to the Lord, Lord, did I direct their focus onto Jim or did, did I direct their focus onto Jesus? See, because I can't meet the deepest needs of my friends. Jesus can. That's why I want to make certain that I'm pointing them, I'm redirecting them to him. So five lessons from a lifer, a friendship lifer. Initiate, commit, defend, defer, and redirect. Now, before we close in prayer, I'm going to ask the campus pastors in just a moment to, to close in prayer. Just a couple of really important words I've got to pass on to you. This is my last sermon for the next couple of months. Okay, so what the church kindly does for me every summer is they give me two months to go away and study. So in the middle of that time, I'll probably take a week or so of vacation, but most of the, the time I'm just digging in and getting prepared for next season. So I invite you to pray for me. Uh, If Sue and I are in town, we're usually here at Christ Community. So you'll probably bump into us or you'll see me on the bike path or, you know, at the health club or whatever. Please feel free to say hello when we bump into each other. Don't pretend like you don't know me. Okay. I'm very insecure in that regard. So be my friend. Okay. Uh, But I got to tell you, this summer, we have got a tremendous series going on. This both and series on the attributes of God. You're going to get to to know God a whole lot better. Pastor Clayton's doing a lot of that teaching. Some of it's being done by outside guests who are stellar. Like one of our guests, we bring him here periodically, is our partner from Sierra Leone, Shadanke Johnson. If you've never heard Shadanke preach, you are in for a treat. So don't miss, don't miss a weekend this summer. And the other thing I want to say just before I leave town, I want to tell you what a fantastic job you're doing with respect to generosity. 
So June is actually the end of our fiscal year here at Christ Community Church. We close the books for the fiscal year. We are firmly in the black with regard to our general giving. And what's so cool about that is that we're in the black even though we're doing this next campaign, trying to raise an additional over and above $11 million in the next two years, and we're raising it plus giving on a regular basis. So thank you for your faithfulness in giving. In fact, a quick report on next. Uh, we already have close to 40% of the next gifts have come in, even though we're only 25% of the way, we're a quarter of the way through the campaign. We've had over $4 million already given to the next campaign. And uh, you, you need to know what that's accomplishing. See, when that, when that money starts coming in like this, we get to work on the projects. So out in DeKalb, you know, you DeKalbers, you know this. We've already broken ground out there. A year and a half from now, you guys are going to be in your own building on your own property right across from DeKalb High School. And down in Blackberry Creek, you know, we're just a week or two away from the staff getting into their own offices. They, their offices have been children's classrooms for the past number of months. And so we're just completing that project. International... Ministries-wise, I could go on and on. I'll take just one partner to give you an example. In Brazil, we've already managed in the last couple of months, we've sent $75,000 down to our partner in Brazil. Let me tell you about this partner. In Manaus, Brazil, at the, the headwaters of the Amazon, we support a church ministry there. Just before Easter, the week before Easter, they did a passion play that over 12,000 people came to. 2,000 people gave their lives to Christ. 2,000 people, brand new Christ followers. And, and it, it gets even better. 600 of those who made a new decision to surrender to Christ are now in one-on-one -on -one discipleship. They're going through a five-week course with someone who's getting them started in their Christian walk. This is a church that has started over 100 churches along the Amazon River in villages that some of you have visited on a go-team trip. Our $75,000 has been put to use for an airplane that allows them to get to remote areas where a boat can't even get them. So this is, you know, this is what's ha what happens as you give generously. If you're not yet on board, I encourage you, make this summer a time when you become a giver. You know, and if you're out of town, you know, one of the best things you can do is do the online giving so you know your giving's going to be regular, it's going to be disciplined, it's going to be generous. And I would say to you too, you know, in the course of a two-year campaign trying to raise this $11 million, some people make promises they're not able to keep because they lose a job or they move to a, you know, a different town. And so, so if you're giving and have already given and maybe fulfilled your commitment, I want to challenge you to consider giving even more as God prospers you. You know, if God's given you an ability to give, keep on using it. You'll, you'll soon discover God's got a bigger shovel than you do. Okay, so you keep doling it out to God, and he comes with, a, you know, with this huge shovel and just dumps more blessing into your lap. So let me ask the pastors at our other campuses to close in a word of prayer, even as I do so at St. Charles. Would you stand together with me? You know, I'll remind you that we have, uh, we have a prayer team on the far side of the railings. They love to pray for you. And so if there's anything going on in your life for which you need prayer, take full advantage of them. 
And I'll be going as I close right now. I'll be walking to the back welcome center. If you're a guest, I'd love to meet you. Or if you've been coming for a while and we've never met, come say hello. Say hello and goodbye, okay? Hello, goodbye for the summer, Jim. But, you know, come and, come and say, uh, you know, a brief greeting back in the welcome center, that glass-walled building at the back, uh, glass-walled room. And by the way, there are treats out in the lobby. So my closing prayer is the only thing that stands between you and donuts right now. <laughs> Dads, have a happy Father's Day. Let's receive a blessing from the Lord as I close. If you have put your hope and trust in Jesus, you have become a son, you've become a daughter to God. As many as received him, John 1 verse 12 says, as many as received him, Jesus, to those he gave the power to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name. You have a good, good father who loves you who loves you, who protects you, who provides for you, who draws you close, who disciplines you when you wander so that he could pull you back under his arm. He wants your world to know about him. And so as you go, as you go, bring the light of Jesus into dark places. Bring the fragrance of Jesus into places that need that new smell, that fresh smell of a loving God. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.